0: Hello to all my Facebook friends. It's Sunday afternoon. I'm I'm uh, having this Bible study from Tyler, Texas, a little bit of a soggy Tyler, Texas. We've had some wonderful rain this afternoon, and what a blessing uh, that is. It's a great uh, time to be able to be with you and to be checking on you and to let you be checking on me as well as we have this uh, time together to look at a wonderful passage of scripture and a great, uh, great story from the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, This story about this father and what he says to Jesus and how Jesus interacts with him is is truly one of my favorite uh, Bible studies. And it is uh, a study that it is a story that I think we can all especially identify with. Uh, It's wonderful to see some folks that are uh, uh, checking in on us. My buddy Jackson Smith, great to see you. Hope all is well uh, with you, my friend. Of course, uh, Cindy and Eric Mosley, Larry and Lynn Murphy, so many others that uh, tend to watch and say hello. It's great to be able to say hello to you as well. Uh, This morning, as we were in our uh, worship assembly at West Irwin Church of Christ, um, I was able to share from my favorite chapter of the Bible, from Romans chapter 8, and I hope if you haven't uh, listened to that or watched that message uh, from this morning, I hope that you'll do that because it is a great, um, it is a great, great chapter. Uh, I could, I could preach on Romans 8 every week. I, I probably wouldn't have a job for long, but I could certainly do that. Uh, it is a great passage of Scripture, my dear sister Barbara Kasky. Great to see your name show up. And so uh, I'm glad that you're able to be uh, uh, sharing some time with family this weekend and look forward to seeing you again uh, soon as well. Uh, and so with all of that in mind, let's take a look at this great chapter of Mark uh, chapter 9. It is a, uh, it's a wonderful chapter. Mark 8 shared the exciting event of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah and what that truly means. And we're going to see some more of that kind of thing. Uh, today as well in Mark chapter 9, um, but we also understood from Mark chapter 8, and we'll see again, that uh, the disciples, including Peter, didn't exactly get what that meant. For Jesus, it meant something completely different than what it meant uh, for the apostles. The apostles saw Jesus riding in on, a, on an impressive stallion and raising his sword and, and killing off all of their enemies, and instead, what they got Uh, was someone who was born in an obscure uh, village, uh, born into uh, difficult circumstances, and ultimately being uh, uh, betrayed, denied of justice, and crucified on the cross as a criminal. Uh, And that's not how they pictured the Messiah, uh, but that's what Jesus did. And what a blessing it is for us that he did. In chapter 9, now, Mark records more indications that the disciples still just don't get it. They don't understand. But um, but it literally begins with one of those mountaintop experiences. And this is one of the, <laughs> I think this is one of the reasons why we have that phrase, is this story uh, from the Bible uh, in Mark chapter 9. And it also finds itself in uh, Matthew 17. And in, um, and in Luke chapter 9, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Peter, James, and John are the three that are closest to Jesus. They're all close. They're all disciples, but Jesus is especially close uh, to those three, to Peter James, and John. And um, and so he takes them with him a little bit further. He takes them with him a little bit further in the garden of Gethsemane. He takes them into the room where he's going to heal Jairus's daughter, and we understand that uh, that was a very special thing that they were able to enjoy uh, that not everybody else was able to experience. And this is another one of those. On the mountain of transfiguration, uh, Peter, James, and John go a little bit uh, go with Jesus into up uh, up into this mountain there it says he was transfigured before them his clothes became dazzling white whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus and uh, and and Luke gives us a little bit of a, a more indication of exactly uh what that what that was and I'm gonna bring up my little, uh, situation here. I've got, uh, a couple of things working as I try to make this, this work. And so I'm managing a few things, um, as we, uh, broadcast from my cell phone, uh, connected to my laptop today. So <laughs> if the technology goes all crazy, then you can blame me for that for sure. Um, in Luke chapter 9, Luke gives us uh a little bit more indication of what is going on here. Elijah and Moses are there, and Matthew tells us that, Luke tells us that, Mark tells us that, but Luke also tells us that they were talking to him about his departure. And I and I think that's um I think that's significant. It's amazing how uh Jesus is able to have these two, Moses and Elijah. Two, the great prophet, the great lawgiver, but two who understood what it meant uh, to be um, experiencing some of the things like Jesus was about to experience. So I don't think it's any accident that it's Moses and Elijah that are talking with Jesus. Moses, who had been chased out of Egypt by his own people at age 40 and then challenged constantly after he came back at age 40. Uh, 80 to lead them out of Egypt and through the promised land Elijah of course running uh, for his life uh, from uh, his own king and queen Ahab and Jezebel uh, because of threats on his life Um, verse 4 of Mark 9 there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. And I get that. I would have been frightened as well. Exactly right. Uh, Because that that would have been very difficult. What a scary, scary situation. Uh, As Peter sees this going, James and John, they don't say anything. Uh, Peter does. And of course, it's the wrong thing. But He doesn't know what to say. They're all scared to death, and we get that, don't we? But of course, Peter never let that give him any pause. (laughs) He went ahead and spoke anyway. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. What a great statement from the Lord God, as his own son is there, As with Moses and Elijah, and if you were to talk to Peter, James, and John, and there was the resurrected Moses, there was the resurrected Elijah, and there was Jesus of Nazareth, their friend that they had known for a while now. Um, Ask them who was the greater of those, then they would certainly list Moses and Elijah before Jesus. But God brings himself into the equation, and he says this is my son. Listen to him. Yes, Moses gave you the law. Yes, Elijah, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. But this is my son. You listen to him. What a great, great visual that Peter, James, and John never forgot. And later on, John would write about this at the beginning of 1 John when he spoke about uh, being able to see Jesus and, t- and touch him and hear his voice and, and to be able to experience uh, these things. Peter himself in 2 Peter 1 would say, hey, look, we didn't follow, we didn't invent this stuff. We didn't make this stuff up. We didn't invent cleverly, clever stories. But rather, we were there. We were there on that mountain. We heard that voice. Verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. <laughs> I think I would have been discussing a few other things as well, but that one kind of caught them. They they didn't understand this. And yet, as we saw from the last chapter, Jesus was at this point began to I think consistently talk to them about what was going to happen to him, that he was going to Jerusalem ultimately, that he would be uh, betrayed and that he would be turned over to the Jewish leaders and the Romans and that he would be killed. and But then he would rise from the dead. And and they had trouble getting all of that. And I think it goes back to their conception of what Messiah, uh, what Christ was supposed to do and to be. Um, verse 11, they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Malachi talks about Eli, uh, Elijah coming and Jesus makes it clear in verse 12, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And the other gospel writers make it clear that Jesus is referring uh, to John the Baptist. And we have already seen the story of how Herod had had him placed in jail and then ultimately beheaded because of his teaching and preaching. Well, it's there's a message here for us, and that is that we are to listen to Jesus, just as Peter, James, and John were told as well. But there's also that lesson of the great humanity of Jesus, talking with Moses and Elijah, as Luke says, about his departure, which was soon to take place. Um, I, I love that. I love that, that God sent Moses and Elijah, not just to demonstrate uh, the Lordship of his own son to Peter, James, and John, but also to bring comfort to his son as he was beginning to see that road ahead and how difficult it was going to be. Uh, From here, we go to a a great, great story. And again, as I said at the beginning, uh, one of my favorite stories, uh, as we look at this, this father and this son and the disciples' lack of faith and, and this man's acknowledgment of his own faith and lack of faith, but desire uh, to grow in that faith. Uh, Mark 9, beginning at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law, our scribes, arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. A horrible, terrible thing that this father is is seeking at any price, at any possible option uh, to overcome. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And that's going to be a key here because I think Jesus is going to begin to be a little frustrated with his disciples that they're just not able uh, to do this. Um, um, uh, And so, verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus says, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. There are times in Jesus' ministry when he expresses and demonstrates that frustration with his disciples. Never sinful, of course, but just that desire for them to be understanding this and and getting this a little bit quicker than what they were. Verse 20, so they brought him, they brought the boy to Jesus. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Uh, Jesus is very concerned for this boy. And he's very concerned for this father. And he's very frustrated, I think, with the lack of faith that he sees all around him. But at the same time, uh, he is willing to put himself into this situation. And so he's doing all of that. And he's trying to help them understand what's going on. And he's trying to help them uh, see his great power and realize the power that they have as well. Uh, how long has he been like this? Verse twenty-one. From childhood, the man's father, the boy's father, answered, "It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us." The man is obviously looking to Jesus, but his statement um, is is one that Jesus reacts to. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can said Jesus, verse 23, everything is possible for one who believes. And it seems like this is a bit of a rebuke. Uh, again, remember, this father is talking to Jesus. His disciples haven't been able to help. And so, you know, clearly the man is wondering if if he's going to be, uh, have the, the uh, relief that he desires for his son here. And so he tells Jesus, look, if you can do anything, please help us. And that sounds sincere enough to us, and I'm sure it was. Um, But again, Jesus is surrounded by a lack of faith. And so he reacts, if you can, verse 23, everything is possible for one who believes. And we might expect this father to become defensive. We might expect him to just take his boy and walk off or Uh, Who knows how we would expect him to react, but the way he reacts and the things he says is exactly right. And, And they are words that we share as well. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that great verse, Mark 9 verse 24, I think is a powerful, powerful statement of where we all are in our journey of faith. We are this father. It's not that we don't believe, we do believe. It's not that we don't have faith, we do have faith. But it's this constant struggle that we experience in this life between faith and, and a lack of faith, between belief and unbelief between strongly following Jesus and and questioning and falling, Jesus says, if you can, the man says, if you can do anything to help, please have pity on us. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And the father says, I do believe. It's not that I don't believe, I do. I truly do. Help me overcome my unbelief. I realize that I don't have the faith that I should have. I don't have the faith that I could have. And so Jesus, help me overcome my unbelief. But no, no, that I do believe. And I think, again, that is an incredible statement of faith. It is where we all are. Uh, As we struggle sometimes, it's not that we have uh, turned our back on Jesus. It's not that we no longer believe. But rather, it is simply that the world's struggles at the moment are getting the best of us. And we're having a hard time with that. And so we look to Jesus and we give him this prayer and we tell him, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. What a great, great healing that Jesus brings. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer or by prayer and fasting. An incredible scene. And again, we see this man's faith in contrast with the disciples that couldn't do anything to help him, couldn't do anything to help his son. And Jesus rebukes the man for his lack of faith, but the man again gives the perfect response, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And in the rest of this chapter, we see that contrast brought out uh, again in a great light, just as we do throughout uh, this section of the Gospel of Mark. Verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Remember when Peter has questioned him and says, no, this will never happen to you. Jesus rebukes him, calls him Satan and says, no, this is, this is not the Father's will. Uh, it is, this is what I am to do. It is not the Father's will for me uh, to get out of doing this. This is why I came. And the disciples didn't get it and didn't get it for the longest time. Um, verse 33, they came to Capernaum, one of those home bases of Jesus in the province of Galilee, that northern province in Palestine, When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? And it just goes from bad to worse for these disciples, just as it does for us so much of the time. What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Wow, we are so much like them, aren't we? Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. You see, a child was the least of their interests. They wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to talk shop. They wanted to see great miracles. They didn't want to mess with kids. And Jesus says, look, you got to humble yourselves you got to be like this little child, but not only that, you've got to receive this little child. Pay attention to them. Uh, take an interest in them. We are to do the same, uh, to take the time with them and to actually genuinely care about them. I love our children at our church, and we have a lot of them, and we have great young families and I have always viewed the children at our church as all of our children. Yes, they're, they have parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles that are especially close and blood-related. But because they're a part of our church family, they are our kids. And I think when we see it that way, then it, um, we, we do more of what Jesus says here. And then this very interesting story that I think is very important uh, for us today and is one of those that is, um, is something that we, uh, we need to be challenged with. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one, does, no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Mark 9, verse 40. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. I fear too many times we're more like these disciples. We're more like John than we are like Jesus. John the Apostle whom Jesus loved, the one who spoke so much about love in his gospel and in his letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this John, along with his brother James, who would be the first apostle killed in Acts 12. Uh, James and John not really wanting to show any appreciation uh, for anybody outside of their circle. I think all of the disciples, all of the apostles at this time had great pride in who they were and the closeness they had with Jesus. And they had a hard time paying attention to children or letting children come to Jesus. They had a hard time uh, expressing that faith. And and they didn't want to see anybody else getting their glory, and that's what's going on here. And I fear too many times that's what goes on with us as well. Paul, in that great passage in Philippians chapter one, as he's in jail uh, and probably in Rome, and people outside are preaching Christ, and he says some of them have have pure motives because they genuinely believe in Jesus and want to share his message, but others he says in Philippians 1, are doing it out of impure motives. They're just trying to stir up trouble. They think if they are preaching about Jesus outside of where I am, that those who are guarding me will, will be rougher on me because of what's going on outside. And Paul has the great message in Philippians 1 when he says, look, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I'll let God deal with the motives. I'll let God deal with the heart. But what I will rejoice in is that Christ is preached, and I'm happy for that, and I will continue to be happy about that, and I wish that we could be the same. I wish that we could be the same. I'm not justifying false teaching at all, and I think, as you have heard me say many times, it's right for us to study the Bible. It's right for us to have our strong convictions and to live by them and to share them in love and respect and consideration and humility always, but at the same time to do that. But that's a far cry from uh, being critical like John was here and hearing the rebuke of Jesus that says, look, John, don't you worry about them. The Father will take care of them. I'll take care of them. But I want you to just rejoice. I want you to continue to preach uh, and to teach. And don't worry about trying to stop them. You keep doing what you're supposed to be doing And I think that would keep us busy enough, don't you? Uh, Well, we continue to read stories of those who didn't quite get it. In Mark 9, verse 42, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. That's how serious Jesus takes our desire uh, to help rather than to hurt. Uh, verse forty three: If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm nev- that that eat them do not die. And the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, verse 50. This verse seems a little out of place. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Jesus continues to try to help his disciples to get it, which they consistently refuse to do. Um, And Jesus tells them, look, let me tell you about priorities. And of course, we have to remind ourselves that we approach the Bible from uh, a perspective that remembers uh, context and remembers a good Bible study uh, uh, process. And so we don't take this passage of Scripture literally. Jesus was making a point, overstatement for emphasis, of course. No, he doesn't want us to pluck our eyes out or cut off our hand. But he does want us to get a feel and an understanding of just exactly how serious sin is and just exactly how serious being away from God for eternity is. Uh, What a blessing it will be to be in the presence of Christ forever. But to lose that, Jesus says, would be the biggest loss you could ever endure, much more serious than any physical loss here in this life. And so Jesus reminds them and us uh, about the what's at stake here about our eternal well-being. And he reminds us that that should have priority over everything else, our eternal well-being and that of those around us. Um, salt is good, he says in the last verse, but if it loses its saltiness, what good is it? We're reminded of that verse from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about salt and light. And it calls us to, to be reminded uh, that we are to live faithful lives, that we are to live obedient lives, but that we are also to try to help others, not hurt them, to encourage their faith, not destroy it. And it's interesting that in this passage, uh, in this chapter, we are faced with these great contrasts. And I think the Gospels, especially in the interactions that people have with Jesus, put in each chapter a contrast. Of people who believe and who get it and people who don't. And it's interesting, as is so often the case, that the apostles don't get it, that those who should be the ones who understand the message of Jesus simply just do not. And so what happens is uh, they're contrasted, their lack of faith, their, um, their lack of good priorities, their desire to um, uh, judge others rather than live faithfully themselves and turn that judgment over to to the Father, they're contrasted with this man and his son. This man who comes before Jesus and says, if you can do anything to help us, please, please help us. And Jesus, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And the man says those great, great words that I hope you'll remember from this lesson. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. We see Peter, James, and John at the beginning of this chapter at the mountain of transfiguration and thinking that, oh boy, what a great deal this is for us. Uh, let's, Let's keep Moses and Elijah around here forever. And the father saying, look, you have the presence of my son. Listen to him. We're called upon to do that very same thing. And we do it imperfectly. We get that. We get that. The father in this chapter got that. And when we realize that, when we come face to face with the holy and righteous God and face to face with our own sinfulness and our own unrighteousness, our own imperfect faith, we respond the same way this father responds. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. May God grant you a great, great week this week.